0: Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach
1: Anderson-Pettit. Zach is Managing Director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech.
0: Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi, welcome back to the Four Fintech Take podcast. I'm your host Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest this week is Joanne Barefoot. Joanne actually has a podcast of her own called Barefoot Innovation. I've been listening to Barefoot Innovation really since I started into the world of fintech. A lot of what I've learned about fintech, about banking, about regtech, etc., etc., has come from either things she's written or things she's produced. One of the questions, though, listening to her podcast consistently, especially impressed by the people that she was able to get onto it, was who is this woman asking all of these questions? So being a self-respecting millennial, I turned to the Google machine and tried to find out on my own. Turns out she was the first female controller of the currency, a serial entrepreneur a couple times over, and generally a total badass. So now that I'm doing for fintech sake and doing this whole podcast thing, I wanted to take the opportunity to tell Joanne's story because it doesn't really get told on her podcast. She's spending the whole time interviewing other people. So the goal was not only to kind of educate my listeners and hopefully tell the story of Joanne for you, but also to give the opportunity to Joanne's listeners. So down the line, she will be sharing this podcast on uh, barefoot innovation as well. As a former deputy controller of the currency, the first female deputy controller of the currency specifically, an advisor in the regulatory space, a serial entrepreneur, she is definitely worth getting to know and it is definitely a story worth hearing. Today, we cover digitizing the regulatory space and how techfin versus the fintech dynamic kind of manifests itself in regtech. We cover stories from the savings and loan crisis, like a Texas banker held up with his guns, refusing to open the bank so that the regulators could come in and close it. Uh, And we also cover Joanne's journey building a personal brand in fintech and why we need more female founders. Excuse my French, but it's honestly fair to say that Joanne runs shit around here. She's truly built one of the most respected personal brands in all of fintech. If you were at money 2020 last year, you probably saw Joanne running a panel, running a live podcast, or just running around. She is absolutely everywhere. After we recorded this podcast, she went on to record a live podcast and moderate a panel and then had meetings, I'm pretty sure just through the rest of the day. All right, with all that said, I should make one last note that is that this was recorded live at LendIt in San Francisco, so you can hear a little bit of craziness in the background, just people running around, talking, whatever. It shouldn't be too distracting, but it is there. So, without further ado, my interview with Joanne Barefoot. Let's start in the early days. Um, something that I've always been kind of curious about that I haven't been able to find about you is where do you grow up? Kind of that, the formative years of Joanne. I think it's really important to get to know the human. So.
1: Great. I grew up in Connecticut, and uh, my, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and inventors. In fact, I have a show in my uh, podcast show that I recorded with my father, who was a helicopter inventor, an entrepreneur and uh i was listening to a lecture he gave at the new england air museum and realized that the parallels between his innovation in the early days of aviation and what i say to my audience about innovation today so uh but my my great-uncle great-great-uncle invented the player piano things like that you know we have an entrepreneurial innovative family and then my mother was a very uh very brilliant, interesting woman as well.
0: Interesting. So something that I was kind of planning to ask you later, but now kind of talking about your dad a little bit, I have to ask you now, um, were, did you want to be a regulator when you grew up? What, I mean, it <laughs> sounds like you wanted to grow up maybe being an entrepreneur more so, but your early days are much more in the regulation space and kind of, you know, a little yeah. more ho-hum than the world of entrepreneurship. That
1: was an accident. I moved to Washington and had a couple of terrible jobs one with the navy and then i i got a job at hud briefly and that led to going to the old federal home loan bank board which later became the office of Thrift supervision and which after the financial crisis got folded into the occ but that was my first it was just because there was a job there and i fell into
0: so you studied studied art. english in college right? i did
1: i was an english major okay indeed, and that yeah.
0: just kind of you ended up in washington because it How how did that part happen? You said it was not a great job, but...
1: So I I moved to Washington because my husband was in the Navy. It was during the Vietnam War, and we had to move to Washington, and then I was just looking for jobs. But my interest at the time was in, uh, you know, this was sort of the time of the great society, and the the civil rights movement, of course, Mm -hmm. and the consumer and environmental movements were at the forefront of social change. And I was very interested in anything that was going to make the world a better place. And as one thing led to another, I got very involved in the extremely proactive efforts of those years of trying to uh, improve the situation of of both financial consumers and also communities through regulation. And that does tie into the arc of my career because looking back on it several decades later... Uh, I don't think the regulation got us where we were trying to get. Yeah. And now I'm more interested in how technology maybe can do that. Gotcha.
0: So, that, that early role on policy as a staff member, right? As a staff member for the Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, was that really something that you thought was going to interest you and lead you to the rest of this career? Or was that kind of like, am, ah, making a paycheck and we'll see what happens? And no, then you got no. interested?
1: By the time I got that job, I was very much in the. The regulatory policy gotcha. and legislative gotcha. uh, work and urban development, as we called it at the time, and um, consumer protection. And my boss was uh, isn't as well known anymore, but he was uh, one of the most prominent members of the Senate at the time, William Proxmire of Wisconsin. He was the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee and very much a leader in trying to uh, enact consumer yeah. protection legislation and the Community Reinvestment Act. He sponsored yeah.
0: that. So you were there, what, about three, four years, something like that? Yes. Right. What What does a staff member do is a question that I've always had. Like, what does that day-to-day look like?
1: So one kind of terrifying thing is to realize how many of our laws are being written by extremely young people <laughs> who don't really know much. Yet. Uh, the The congressional staffs have some great uh you know, gray-headed, wise people, and then they have a lot of kids. Yeah. Uh, so I was one of those. I was very young. Um, I remember Joe Biden came on that committee right after his family had been—he'd um, had the car crash and um, everything. He yeah. had just turned 30, if you can imagine. Wow. Um, but the—I uh, mean, what we did is partly try to figure out legislation, and we held hearings on how to. Uh, think about something like the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, and then craft it, and then try to get it passed. And then um, we also, you you hold oversight hearings where you're bringing in the banking regulators or the secretary of HUD and asking how they're doing on things
0: that must have been a fascinating job to have it just was. that early in your career
1: it was it was a great job
0: doing things you maybe weren't qualified for which is always the best in early yeah career. well
1: I was as qualified as anybody uh, at the time but yeah
0: <laughs> I love it I love it okay so transitioning from there how did you move into the role of deputy controller of the currency is that a I, let's start actually in an even more basic spot what is the OCC
1: great question. So the Office of the Controller of the Currency is the regulatory agency for national banks in the United States, federally chartered banks. The name is uh, an anachronism from the post-Civil War period when the, it's the oldest of our bank regulatory agencies, and they were trying to get hold of the bank-issued bank notes after the Civil War to control the currency. Uh, So they charter and supervise all national banks. And what I... I got recruited there by the uh, controller of the time, John Hyman. And um, for some strange reason, I turned the job down, like, twice. Huh. But fortunately, they talked me into it because it was a great, great job.
0: Why'd you turn it down twice? Just out of curiosity.
1: I liked being at the Senate. Yeah? Uh, you talked about going down rabbit holes. It's, it, there's a side story where I had had a lot of offers and decided to stay. Uh... And uh, then was trying to not consider any other changes. And, uh, but I don't know if you know Chuck Muckenfoos. He was the senior deputy controller for policy at the time, still very active in our field. And he, was, he and Hyman were very persistent.
0: Very adamant. Wasn't yeah. going to let you get away? Yeah. Good. Um, so transitioning from what is the OCC, what does the deputy controller of the currency do?
1: So there are a number of deputy controllers, and in my case, we stood up the original consumer protection and community development function at the hmm. OCC. So I realize, so I hope your readers will realize I went to Washington as a small child <laughs> because it's hard to believe this was so long ago, but the uh, the consumer regulations were new. The Truth and Lending Act had passed in 1969. Okay. Uh, Community Reinvestment Act was um, in not the late 70s, and the uh, is that right? Anyway, um, the uh, the they really developed a critical mass of regulatory requirements on banks. Uh, Ralph Nader was, you know, this was like the heyday of Ralph mm-hmm. Nader. I think he wrote his book Unsafe in Any Speed in maybe 19. 19- 66 or something like okay. that. So this was all of this this big big this um, movement was happening. Movement yeah. of new regulation on banks and financial companies and so the OCC decided that we needed a dedicated office for gotcha. that and I headed up so we had a civil rights Function, a community reinvestment function, and a consumer protection function. Hmm,
0: that's interesting. So that would have been what, seventy nine or so? It Was yes. kind of early eighties. Yeah. So th- when I think of the early eighties in Washington, I think of the complete opposite. I think of deregulation. I think of, you know, the beginning of the savings and loan crisis, kind of all these kinds of things. So was that? Yeah. Was it almost like the 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 wave of kind of what you just described was kind of coming to a head, and then deregulation was the pendulum swinging the other direction?
1: That's a very interesting uh, point because. I went to the OCC in the Carter administration, and then Reagan came in as right. president. Something that was noticeable to me was that there was never any proposal to roll back the consumer protection hmm. regulations in those early deregulatory efforts that you're citing. Uh, I thought there would be, but the, nobody ever said the Truth and lending act is too burdensome yeah. or the... Um, whatever so um so there was a de- there was deregulation of the industry in terms of business activities but not compliance that just kept growing huh. constantly
0: almost like it might have been too much of a political pill to swallow to roll back everything maybe and so
1: maybe so interesting. plus it was such an arcane area too you know there was it's a very Most of what's in that field, especially in the early years, is very technical and detailed. Hmm. A whole profession grew up around. um, I'll mention to your listeners that I'm I'm putting out a series of Harvard papers I've been writing. It's
0: one of the questions I had later, so good, good, good. Okay,
1: And the first two, the first one, um, I have two of them out now, and the first one talks about how this evolved. And and um, including the very technical nature of it, that sort of then uh, sparked the creation of a whole profession of compliance experts. And it, but they, some of that sort of flew under the radar of other policymakers because it was it was arcane. People didn't understand it.
0: That's really interesting. So so in your job at the OCC, with kind of all of this happening, work. You were touching federally regulated banks. Was the savings and loan crisis touching any of that? Because weren't those those were state regulated for the most part, or was that was there overlap there? No, they
1: were both. They, they were, were both. regulated okay. by the old uh, by the Federal Homeland Bank Board and then the the Office of Thrift Supervision. Gotcha. And uh, you know, one of our issues in the United States is we have so many regulated yes, regulators, especially at the federal level and yeah. the state level. Um, so we had we were building efforts at interagency coordination, uh, but they were and still are uh, limited in how they coordinate. But the savings and loans had the same, um, had the same compliance requirements that we were working with.
0: Was that a pretty, uh, were those some stressful times? I'm sure they were interesting times. I'm sure you learned a lot, but was it pretty, pretty tough?
1: Yeah, it wasn't just the SNLs. Of course, there were a lot of bank failures in those years as yeah. well. And I did learn. I remember
0: like a large number uh, that I wasn't, I was not familiar with. I mean, yeah, like a thousand or so.
1: Yes, and my role actually evolved to being the. Um, I had a, I had a number of different hats as I during the time I was there, and it evolved to include being the representative of the controller on the fdic Ah. uh, not on the board itself but the controller is a member of the fdic board so i had a liaison relationship with the fdic and therefore got quite involved in some of the failure situations i remember hearing the story of one texas bank that was failing and the ceo holed up in his office with his weapons and uh wouldn't let anybody in for some period of time. Wow! And, yeah, I mean, Ted Bundy was, of banking. Yeah, it was. Wow! It, it, those are dramatic times, and in those days, you would close a bank by showing up on a Friday night and uh, working over the weekend. I didn't do this work myself, but the teams did work over the weekend, open it up Monday morning with a new owner, usually in a new name, and.
0: So I've, uh, I'm new to the world of banking, right? Only kind of been in it more of a fintech background, but only been in it for about a year. And listening to my CEO and some folks that have been in it for longer, the stories of what it takes to shut down banks and some of these just black ops kind of things, is, it's, it's mind-blowing. I always thought of, you know, a few people show up in suits, they send an email. Like it's it's a very you know low key thing, but it's not. It's well, in very my day, intense. they were
1: definitely showing up in suits. I well, can sure, you sure, sure, sure.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure they still are. But mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't believe almost how uh kind of military it sounds in a lot of ways.
1: They um, are trying to do it smoothly. The, the key is not to panic the right the customers. Right. So much in bank regulation is about preventing runs on banks. You know, think of the Jimmy Stewart, uh, it's a wonderful life situation where Mm -hmm. they're trying to make sure that people have confidence in the banking system. You need that.
0: So what was, uh, probably every day was different, but what was the average day as deputy controller of the currency? What did that look
1: like? So we had, we were, actually what we were doing was building a new, professional focus and function inside the OCC. And to be honest, it was early days when there was a lot of skepticism. These agencies had been focused on safety and soundness Mm -hmm. and are still obviously, uh, but then Congress began to give them this new responsibility to protect consumers more actively. And uh, so we had examinations and enforcement in my group uh, at the time. So we were dealing with serious non-compliance situations. And we were also trying to build a cadre of examiners. And we were trying to do it in a way that would uh, make sure that, the, that it wasn't a second class uh, mm-hmm. career path. Yeah. Uh, and we could, people have different views on whether it is or isn't today, but we were very mindful of wanting to be sure that people who wanted to specialize in the consumer protection area would be, uh, would have an opportunity to go kind of all the way to the top of the OCC. So we were building career paths and and certifications and, um, and then I was very engaged in trying to get both the internal and external constituencies uh, to uh, accept and buy into what we were doing. I was remembering the other day, at the time we had 14 regional offices, and um, I remember the first... So I was the first woman deputy controller of the currency, for one thing, and I was also still young. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so I briefed our 14 regional administrators about what we were doing with my office, and I remember a lot of them just sort of looking at me like, who are you? Yeah. And... uh, Five minutes later, when I went back to my office, one of them was standing in my doorway saying, this is the greatest thing I ever heard. How can I help you? And so we kind of built out from that, you know, people who were, who could see the merit in uh, what we're doing. And similarly with the external audiences, there were times where we visited bank CEOs who... Sort of just didn't think the laws should exist. Sure. They, they in those days there was a perception that the consumer protection laws were antithetical to safety and soundness. Hmm. There was a concern that the government at the time was, and again, polarized. Sure. Um, political environment that the government was trying to get people to make bad loans, and
0: that well, I could see how uh, yeah that how was, an older school bank CEO yeah, could think that way. Sure. That
1: was not the Stated purpose, but but there was a lot to be figured out as to what yeah. exactly did it take for something especially like uh, CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. So I did a lot of public speaking mm-hmm. and a lot of ambassador-type work with the industry. This sounds
0: kind of like the the ultimate entrepreneurship in a lot of ways inside of a government of all things I mean you're building a brand you're building kind of a new way of handling things you're going out you're telling the story you're building the ethos all of these other things yes
1: and my my boss the controller well there were two controllers while I was there but um, the first one had a very explicit clear mission of making sure that we would try to change if we to the extent we were Trying to change the agency, that it would put down roots and last, because he was a political appointee. Yeah, I was the I was not a uh, um, I was in the senior executive service, so I was would leave at some point. So if the career uh, leaders and professionals in these agencies don't believe in what the the politically appointed leaders do, uh, they just wait it out. Yeah. So we we really worked hard at integrating what we were doing with the safety and soundness work.
0: So it sounds did that kind of spur the entrepreneurial bug a little bit? Did that kind of get you thinking, oh, maybe I could go do this and you know maybe not be on a government salary while I'm doing it?
1: Yeah, I don't remember whether I was thinking that that, that far clearly. back or not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, was like, I was always entrepreneurial, yeah. as you say, an in- entrepreneurial. In what I was doing. I think I looked back on my career at one time and realized everything I've done has been to come into an organization that's at a strategic moment and. Mm. Um, like an
0: inflection point of some kind, um, kind
1: of? Yeah. Um, and start to build something. Actually, the answer I just gave you is wrong because, yes, I did go from there to forming my own business. So it must have given me that idea. I think I did that partly because it was a natural. I, I was moving for family reasons to Ohio, and it was sort of a natural step to uh, start a business. And that was consulting. Marinin? Yes. It Who's was Marinin? So, great question. So, it was originally uh, J.S. Barefoot and Associates, and then I brought in Tim Marinen, who I had had gotten to know. He was the chief compliance officer and a lawyer at First Bank. Oh, okay. And um, he passed away last year, sadly. Uh, We all miss him. But, uh, yeah, he came on board, and we teamed up and built a company that we are pretty confident in saying was dominating our that niche uh, yeah. for quite a while and, and in fact when I say that evidence of it is that we uh, competed against KPMG for a very major contract and when we won KPMG bought us. So there we go. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's what I was doing my research. I noticed a couple interesting little things. One is you advised nearly half of all of America's largest banks. And then it goes on to kind of say in many international ones. So mm-hmm. you must have, I mean, did you have a staff under you? Was that truly you and him just running? No, around we the world? had about
1: 40 people and oh, wow. three offices. Uh, yeah. What
0: time? I mean, you, you jump off this building, you're building a plane on the way down doing this recruiting. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how did you build a company that quickly? Was it just everybody was calling, the inbound was very obvious, or were you going and selling? How, how did this all come about?
1: The inbound was obvious, actually, because again, the consumer area had, was still quite a new field. So the industry was learning how to comply. And it's hard to believe it now, but it wasn't clear at the time what would be best practice mm-hmm. in compliance, for example. So the trade associations began to put together conferences and schools and certifications. We were very involved in that. And um, most of our work was, was, I did other work actually. I did strategic planning consulting also for banks, quite a a few banks. But for the uh, compliance work, our phone did ring. People just wanted help and a lot of it was... Not de- Some of it was defensive when a bank was in trouble, but more often it was help us understand how to build a really good fair lending program or mm-hmm. a really efficient, effective yeah. compliance management program. That so kind it's, of
0: thing. I, when I was reading it, I kind of had this question in the back of my head, like, was she lobbying or was she ah. truly providing advice? It sounds more so like you it were was providing advisory. advice, advisory, yeah. and you had the insight as to how the OCC was thinking, et cetera, et cetera, and they were able to leverage yeah. that.
1: In my whole career, I think I only did two cases of advocacy for a bank to a regulator. Uh, and they were both cases where it was absolutely clear to me that the bank was right and the agency was wrong. And they would win it and they did win it. But I didn't do that. A lot of people, you know, that's that there's a whole business line around that. But I was always more focused on how to make the bank... Uh, or financial company yeah. function well.
0: It Seems like you've maintained your uh, your position as Switzerland pretty well there. As yeah, a yeah, that's it. That, was part friend. of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so KPMG buys you. What? So you were competing for a deal. Yeah. How How did this whole thing happen?
1: Yeah. So I shouldn't name the client, but I'm I'm sure that at the time it must have been the largest consumer compliance consulting project. Okay. ever and uh i uh, had a good got later got to become good friends with a person at kpmg and i remember him saying beforehand we're gonna win this because we can just bring so much to it you know
0: bring 800 people into the pitch meeting. yeah, and, yeah. exactly
1: but sure enough um barefoot marinin won it and um But it was true that they could bring so much to it. And, you know, technology was becoming more and more important to everything in finance and financial regulation. And that was something we didn't have at Barefoot Marinin. We were pretty much human consultants, uh, advisors. And um, so being able to connect with KPMG and be able to bring different types of disciplines into our discussions and so on. So Tim and I both went there. We joined forces with Linda Gallagher, who was there at the time and is now um, at Promontory. And the three of mm. us ran that practice. And the, uh, uh, we called it KPMG Barefoot Mariner, and they kept the branding on it. And then a while later, we reorganized, and I was asked to head up the um, Midwestern region of the OCC for, um, for finance, for banks. So I did that, and, uh, and then was that I ran fun? a. Did you like it? It was fun. Did you enjoy I, was, that? I was living in Columbus, but based in Chicago, so I had to go to Chicago every week. But that's fun. Um, but yeah, no, it was a great experience, and, and then I headed. Then we reorganized again, and I headed a national consumer lending uh, practice gotcha. area, and the privacy practice originally for KPMG also. And it
0: sounds like you were staying, kind of you hinted at technology a second ago, it sounds like you were staying pretty close to technology. Is this kind of the job or the portion in your career that kind of led you to everything that is today and your position in the world of fintech and regtech?
1: Uh, I'm not sure that it was I have always been a technophile I'm not a yeah. techie person I don't have because of your expertise. parents and
0: you can't help it if you want it you want to take something apart every time yeah. you see the way a system works yeah and all that.
1: maybe so I just always have been I've always gravitated to how technology can do things better and back when I was doing my strategic planning consulting for small banks I always would build a a technology section into the strategic plan because, you know, it was profoundly changing banking yeah. even back then. And then, uh, I did be, it was really more of an epiphany later hmm. that after I went to tree lion and the FinTech movement began to, uh, so I, I skipped a so step yeah, tell, there, but tell us about know. that part. So, um, So I was at KPMG, and then I decided to leave to write a book. So I took quite an interesting career twist and turn. I've done that repeatedly in my life. And... uh, so I went. I decided to. I decided to write a novel. There's a longer oh, story there, okay. but I. I won't tell That's it. That's what I think I of know. most
0: ex-regulators is that there's <laughs> a novel in their future.
1: Yeah. So this was really interesting because I was living in Ohio. I wanted to spend more time with my children, and um, and I had begun writing a book, and I wrote a novel. I never have published it, but I did very well with it. I got. I got into the. Semi-finals of the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Contest, which oh, wow. was pretty, it was a very, I think they had 30,000 applicants You were just full of something.
0: random talents. All right, we're going to discover pretty soon that you're an expert juggler or something in addition <laughs> to all this.
1: Not that, but those years uh, really developed my right brain creative side in a way that I believe I never would have if I had stayed in a linear channel. So, did you take
0: time off just to write the book? So
1: I left KPMG to write the book, and then I, um, I kept in. I was had a solo consulting practice still sure. going. So I had, I was still doing financial consulting, but I also got very involved in volunteer work. I chaired the board of a college, and I and a really notable thing that I did was I chaired the board of the Nature Conservancy of Ohio, the board of trustees which led the Nature Conservancy to ask me to chair their global trustee council. Oh, wow. And they talked me into that by telling me it would be hardly any work. And a couple years later, I realized...
0: They lied. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) when I
1: get to the end of my life, I think I'll I'll look back on it and feel like this was one of the most important things that I did because the Nature Conservancy was moving from a national to a global mission because most of the things we would want to save in the world were outside the US. So I helped with that strategic change, and it might have, might as well have been a full-time job. But it gave me a global perspective. In those same years, I also went to India wow. and got involved in a project there that um, is called Rising Star Outreach, which is focused on helping people in leprosy communities. And uh, that broadened our horizons. I took my daughter and then my son when they were in high school to that experience and um So suddenly I just was severed from the sort of head down compliance type work. Yeah.
0: The OCC matters a little bit less when you notice that there's people in foreign countries suffering from leprosy and this whole world's out there. Exactly. And microfinance
1: was part of what was helping them. And, you know, so looking at finance from that lens was really interesting. I also took up fly fishing and traveled to uh, New Zealand and... um, have you ever Chile been asked Argentina to do a Dos Equis commercial? Are you the, most, the most interesting woman <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and I went and I took a... a uh, right before I left KPMG, I, I took a landmark trip to Alaska and looked for wolves in the wilderness there. Wow. In little airplanes. And that actually was what caused me to take the big jump in my life. I just decided to... Uh, just do something totally different.
0: And was that big jump to Hummingbird? Is that the... No, that was the big jump
1: to leave KPMG. Gotcha, okay. And then I got recruited back to Washington right after the financial crisis when it was becoming obvious. I I suddenly was at a moment where I felt like the world was kind of coming to me. Hmm. The CFPB was being created. Issues that had always been... Sort of secondary and banking were suddenly at the forefront. How were so many people harmed? And you know, we had all of this consumer protection.
0: Yeah, you're like, I've been yelling about this for like 20 years, (laughs) y'all.
1: And and you know, as far as we can tell, most of the loans that got people in trouble in the mortgage crisis were compliant, yep, and yet people were had their lives crushed by them. So, what you know, what are we doing wrong? So I uh, got convinced by the leaders of Trelliant to come back. So I was co-chair there, along with Mark Olson, who also passed away last year. He's a former, was a former governor of the Federal Reserve Board, and we built uh, Trelliant. It was it already existed when I got there, but we built it up into a just so everybody great firm. knows.
0: Will you explain Trelliant from the from the so beginning?
1: So tre- Trelliant is a. Uh, It's called Trulant Risk Advisors. It's a consulting firm focused on regulatory compliance. And um, so I did that for a few years. But in those years, fintech emerged. Hmm. And I was helping build a fintech practice, even though it wasn't very lucrative because the companies were little and poor. Sure.
0: This was kind of between 2000 and 2010?
1: This was, no, this was after after Post-crisis. 2011. Oh, yeah. okay, wow. Okay. Yeah, around the time the CFPB was created. Gotcha, okay. And that was
0: one of the things I wanted to put a pen in. So being in your position, you have many opinions, I'm sure, but what did you think initially when the CFPB was being created? About damn time, or what was the thought?
1: I thought it was a good idea. I think you. there were other ways that you could have accomplished the goal, probably, but um, the... Impetus to dedicate an agency to solving these problems certainly was appealing to me. I was on the original consumer advisory board at the CFPB, and um, I, I, you know, frankly, just for me, it it just elevated the opportunity to to be more proactive mm-hmm. with the consumer protection area. And they were they liked to in the beginning call themselves the first 21st century regulatory agency. They were they had a tech thought process yeah. going on. So this isn't the place to talk about what I think they've done right and wrong over. I was going to let you go after that one. Yeah, um, don't worry. I wasn't going <laughs> to wasn't going to um, put you through that. <laughs> but it was appealing to me. But I started trying to advocate to the CFPB and to everyone else that the fintechs that were starting to show up were solving consumer problems that nobody had been able to solve before. Mm -hmm. If we ask ourselves, what are the problems that a consumer has with finance? It's partly about about not having enough money. But even if you don't have enough money, you have a financial life. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you don't have enough money, you need to manage your financial life even more successfully than if you do have money. But all the other issues, access, affordability, ability to qualify for a loan, problems with the payment system that make Mm. people work in cash, Um, you know, we could just go on down the list, lack of clarity, lack of financial literacy, the complicated products that people don't get, or even just our behavioral uh, challenges, you know, bad habits, spending too much money today and not saving for tomorrow fintechs are working on all of those. And so I had the epiphany that problems that we had been trying to solve for decades through regulation and things like disclosure and even financial literacy education and had not made a dent in Mm -hmm. could be solved to a tremendous extent with new technology if we can allow it to flourish. And that in turn led me to decide that the thing that's most likely to go wrong in that effort is that we'll get the regulation wrong. Mm-hmm. Not anybody's fault, but oh. just very hard for the regulators to deal yeah. with this kind of change. So that made me then start to focus on regulatory innovation to enable yeah. flourishing of that, tech.
0: So in that in that time frame that probably would have been an unpopular opinion a little bit. The idea that fintechs are going to be able to solve a lot of these problems that maybe, you know, the the more established financial institutions haven't exactly been able to, to this point. Back in 2011, 2012, I mean, you probably would have been, you know, not ostracized, but you weren't the best friend of the local bank CEO by any means.
1: I, you know, I think it's, um, I think that for one thing, most of the banking industry didn't even realize what was happening because mm. it was all outside of the banks at the time. They didn't
0: even think to be mad about it yet, or right. So yeah.
1: And the federal regulators weren't even touching it because the none of it was inside the banking industry at all. It was sure. It was in the small startups that the states regulate. Yeah. And then, um, but over time, I, I really feel that none of this is anybody's fault. I mean, banks. We're doing the best you could do. Take, take mobile banking. The World Bank has a goal that we should have, every adult in the world should have a so-called bank account by 2020, next year. So we're not going to hit what? 2020, yeah. but we're going to hit in the 2020s, this will happen. Everyone will have access. To a financial account because yeah. everyone has a cell phone yeah back to my experiences in india and some of the traveling that i did yeah. you know people have phones and um so that so suddenly technology created a del- delivery channel that wasn't there before nobody was ever going to build a bank branch and staff it for poor people all over the world right but they have the phone and you can deliver financial services through it That kind of change just has been eye-opening, but it's not really the fault of banks that they couldn't do that. You know, the technology wasn't there, and it's not the fault of regulators that they weren't doing it because it it was impossible.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's nothing if not a complex system, right? I mean, working inside of a community bank, I've been a community bank customer my whole life at a, a different bank, but moving into NBKC and realizing, you know, it's a widely known as a pretty innovative bank generally and everything else but at the end of the day we are still very dependent on our core processor right and so many of these even medium to small gigantics are so dependent similarly that i mean it's not the bankers fault. the regulators are doing the best they can anyways i think we agree but we're we're going
1: to have to move all of you know no offense to the core processors we're going to have to move to the cloud and get the efficiencies and yeah. security of cloud computing fully distributed in the banking system. That's and going to be I a huge the, enabler.
0: Yeah, I think the, the seems like the core processors that are paying attention at least are are, te- are checking that box at least, right? Like they're up on stage checking that box. Who knows if Absolutely, those, those pieces of software are getting pushed to production mm-hmm. is a different conversation. Yeah, they're all but, working
1: on it, yeah. yeah.
0: So that's a that's a good transition I think into Hummingbird into kind of your your current entrepreneurial life. So one tell me about Hummingbird just so that we can all understand it and second how did kind of what was the germ of the idea? How did you meet the co-founders just that whole thing.
1: So since you're asking about my life, I will say that the germ of the idea came from my co-founder and me brainstorming it and and Matt Van Buskirk is actually my son. I don't know if you knew that. What?
0: I did not know that. I've been on like three calls with you. <laughs> well, we don't
1: right. we don't hide it, but we don't always bring yeah. it up. But um, You don't call
0: him Sonny Boy on the calls, I noticed. Do not. No, so that's, he, that's he fair. calls me
1: Joanne. <laughs> but the uh, we had actually thought about starting a, a company earlier that would have been a fintech app, something a lot of people have since done, but we didn't do it at the time.
0: Like B2C kind of thing?
1: Uh, yeah exactly and we um, were calling it Hummingbird just as a code project name or whatever Sure. Uh, and then we realized that he had been uh, a regulator and then a consultant and then went to Circle as their um, head of compliance. Circle is a Mm -hmm. crypto company in Boston
0: The Apple did not fall far
1: Exactly and that gave him experience with what you can do if you build compliance technology from scratch mm. using consumer product uh engineers instead yeah. of the yeah. things Cobalt. we usually have yeah exactly <laughs> and uh so we started brainstorming this during a couple of trips we had visiting my dad actually uh and um realized that there was an opportunity to bring great technology to the compliance world which had never had it Mm -hmm. great user experience new data new analytics everything so matt had worked at circle with joe robinson and so matt and i got this concept and then joe brought in our other two co-founders as well jesse reese and ryan gerard and uh we started with anti-money laundering because it's the most broken piece of compliance. Mm-hmm. Most people agree.
0: So you just named you just name five people, right? We have five Between co-founders. The, all of you. Yep, that is a large number of co-founders. It is.
1: Um, they came as a team. They—they yeah. d- they were all at Square at one point and decided to do something together. Mm-hmm. And so it was lucky for Hummingbird because we got a built-in tech. Uh, you know tech team yeah. ready-made when they came aboard but so matt and i are in washington on the reg side and they're in the bay area on the tech side mm-hmm. and we like to say that one of our uh, advantages is that unlike many firms in the reg tech space we're equally strong on the reg and the tech
0: That was going to be one of my questions. I mean, having five co-founders to me, number one, sounds like a lot of equity share. But, I mean, if you handle it correctly, that doesn't matter, right? But the idea that in regtech, a lot of the conversations that I've had, calls that I've had just about either prospecting for the accelerator or, you know, just trying to find interesting technologies for the bank it's either really hard to believe that company because they don't have a Joanne, they don't have somebody that actually understands the mind of the regulator, yeah. or they only have the mind of the regulator and they don't understand the technology side. So, do you, do you think you would be anywhere near as far along as Hummingbird is if you didn't have both of those?
1: No, we think that's our secret sauce. Uh, and I we completely agree with what you just said. There are a lot, you know, no disrespect to anybody no, in course, the field, yeah. but yeah, no there are a shade lot anything. of companies yeah. that have brilliant regulators and lawyers, ex-regulator types and terrible technology and then there are a lot of great tech solutions who just don't get the regulatory environment and don't understand how to gain the confidence that you need to
0: So I think that that's it makes so much sense in reg tech that you need both sides. Do you think the same is true of fintech? This is kind of a conversation that I think is starting to percolate more and I really want to try and have on this podcast a lot is the world of tech-fin versus the world of fintech. Do you yes. think there's overlap there? And just kind of what do you think about the balance?
1: I do think so. Um, I think the I think the biggest barrier that we have to, pro- to a better financial system that serves people better is the walls and silos that keep the tech world apart from mm-hmm. both the financial world and the regulatory world. Yeah. And the secret to it, it's not... It doesn't sound like rocket science, but not many people do it. You have to get everybody in the same room. Yep. I try not to do meetings where I don't have tech people there. I like to say I know I'm in a good meeting if I have to declare an acronym free zone. <laughs> and... Um, just because people talk their jargon, they talk to the right. people in their field. I think we skipped over the Harvard, my Harvard experience. I mentioned I was doing yeah. the papers, yeah. but um, I did, at, when I left TreeLine. I went to Harvard for two years as a senior fellow writing a book and now it's a series of papers that are coming out and um, I hosted a conference there on RegTech. People came from all over the world hmm. and we just realized that the people in the room, the regulators know they have a problem with making regulation efficient and effective, and they think you can't solve it. And the tech people in the room could solve it, but they don't know about the problem or they don't think it's an interesting problem, which it is. So you bring them together, and suddenly you're having an entirely different discussion. I love working with my Hummingbird colleagues because they're just, um, I'm writing, I'm co-authoring an article right now with Jesse Reese on... uh, what the banking world can learn from the tech world and mm-hmm. about innovation and just explaining the ways they look at a problem, the ways they tackle a problem are different from what compliance yeah. and financial people do.
0: Do you have any action items for other entrepreneurs or just for people in fintech? You know, I, I and again, I think it's one of those, if it's, it's either everyone's fault or no one's fault, but it's kind of like the Robin Hood thing. Like they need to go talk to SIPC. There's yeah. a lot of, you know fintech companies that need to go have a conversation with a CTO, right? It's The blame is on both ends. Right. Um, but do you have any action items for kind of less reg tech, more just entrepreneurially centric fintech companies? To get to more beyond, you know, just getting all in the same room. Sometimes we can't do that. Any other thoughts?
1: Advice, not just on the regulatory part, but overall.
0: Just on how you can build that robust conversation that has the technology and the fintech or and the finance side. I mean, maybe the answer is really just get them all in the damn same room. I mean,
1: that's most of it. The um, I think the the thing that people still I when I speak to uh, startup. Audiences, I sometimes say how frequently I hear the comment uh, of people in the in fintech startup saying um, it's a good thing I didn't know yeah. what it, the regulatory <laughs> right. thing is because right. I w- never would have done this. Yep. You know, um, not to underestimate it and not to. I do not recommend the fly under the radar strategy and you know hope that nobody will notice you until you're big move fast and break things does not work in not in finance um it's really really dangerous but at the same time the regulators are scrambling pretty hard to try to get good at uh being open to innovation Mm -hmm. i should mention so i have hummingbird and then my other enterprise is barefoot innovation group and um we are backed by Flourish Ventures, which was... Barefoot you know, or. Well, I have a grant from oh, Flourish. Oh, okay. okay. I was going
0: to say, are you building barefoot into something? You got venture backs that I didn't Well, I didn't we
1: are... Uh, actually, we're exploring creating a nonprofit. Interesting. It's um, okay. so a little... I don't want to overstate how definite it is, but sure. our working name for it is the Alliance for Innovative Regulation, or AIR. Fascinating. And um, Flourish was... Uh, has just spun off from the Omidyar uh, Network. Yeah. Pierre Omidyar was the founder of eBay. Yep. And his commitment to financial inclusion has caused them to focus on fixing the regulatory part. You're not going to have good, inclusive finance unless we're really smart about how to regulate it and efficient yep. about how to regulate it. So so I do a lot of work with them as well. And the uh, the advice to the industry is... is First of all, don't compromise your principles on how you're treating the consumer. Mm -hmm. Most fintechs go through a life cycle where suddenly they're under more earnings pressure. And if they start to back off of things they've promised about how they're going to treat the consumer, it will undermine their credibility. It won't work. And then secondly... Be try to reach out to the regulators and help them understand what you're doing. What's
0: the best way to do that? You did an amazing episode with, uh, I forget, Fox something. I've forgotten the name of the law FinTech firm. FinTech no. Fox. FinTech Fox. Yeah, no,
1: Aaron Fox is the law firm's Aaron name. Aaron Fox, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, that, I would, I'll put that in the show notes. That, that I think, solves the, it. I t- love that. It really one, handles yeah. this question well. But quickly, from your point of view, what is the kind of the best way? I mean, is it just call them? They're humans too? Or what's the answer?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the regulators have pretty much all at least at the federal level set up innovation offices and they hold office hours and you can just approach them. And that's part of why they created these as like a gateway mm-hmm. because people don't know how to approach them. Right. And then firms like Aaron Fox and some of the other law firms will also help small startups, uh, get going at, at the, many of them have very reasonable, yeah. um, approaches to that because the fintechs are small but the tech-fin point that you raised before um, is all is the other huge trend. I do think we'll see the tech companies increasingly coming into finance, yeah. whether they're going to, Apple, want to Goldman
0: be Goldman thing, that whole yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And so it's going to be disruptive, but it'll yeah. be probably in the end be really good for the consumer.
0: But even then, right? I mean, think about all the the cash that Apple Apple has on their balance sheet. Notice they did not go buy a bank. Right? They could have bought every community bank in the U.S. with that kind of cash, and they did not, they still yeah. partnered with somebody. So clearly there's some reasoning behind the regula- regulatory side and everything yeah. else, right?
1: We have years ahead of figuring out the regulatory part, but part of my message on RegTech is, we, we've been digitizing finance, we should also now digitize the regulatory process too, and get information into digital form so that everyone can use it efficiently. Today, compliance, whether you're a risk ma- manager or a compliance mm-hmm. person or you're a regulator, the information you need is in text and spreadsheets that mm-hmm. are not accessible and that kind of thing. And we need to get it uh, converted to a form where we can really look at systemic risk. Yep. The regulators are beginning to worry that if they don't do that, they're going to find themselves regulating financial services they don't understand and right. can't see. Yeah. So we need to speed it up and make it more transparent.
0: So you're almost kind of saying that at this point, the the first domino that has to fall there is a data problem. It's about standardization of data, making sure that everything's kind of in one aggregated yeah. spot so that we can even just understand what's going on.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it'll be the first domino, but it definitely has to be figured out. One of the What, first, are, sure. what are the standards? So I want to be super
0: respectful of your time, which I'm already almost not being. So I have one last question that I have to ask you because I've always wanted to ask you. You personally, Joanne, have one of the best brands in fintech from my point of view. Um, the fintechs know you. As we were just joking, the tech fins know you. Like you were, I was in New York last week interviewing Jimmy Chen from Propel, and I was talking quickly about a podcast that had kind of inspired me to do this, and he was like, oh, Joanne Barefoot? <laughs> Great. Um, so you were known out there in this world. I was at Money 2020 last year, and you ran like half of it. I mean, I <laughs> opened the freaking thing, and it was like, Joanne Barefoot here, Joanne Barefoot <laughs> there. So I guess the question is, one— Was this personal brand building thing that you've accomplished conscious? Like, have you been trying to put yourself in that position?
1: It's been conscious, but as a means to an end. So I've been on... Let let me put it this way. I appointed myself to solve the regulatory issue in FinTech. I love it. uh, Back when I was at Harvard. I just figured out you know, I don't, I said, I don't know who's going to do this. And I understand both these worlds. If not me, then who? Um, and then that work has caused me to connect to all the nodes in the ecosystem. I respect all the nodes in the ecosystem. They all have valid points Mm -hmm. of view. They all have a lot to bring to the table. So I have been very proactive in trying to be visible. i practically kill myself traveling to speak all over the world yeah (laughs) Yeah. i try to get these messages out where people will see them and my podcast show barefoot innovation has a big following and i'm so glad you enjoy it it makes me really happy to hear that but it's a podcast i do a lot of writing i do a lot of speaking and then i just try to uh understand and connect people across these divides in this space
0: I love it so the the last follow-up and then I'm gonna let you go to your next speaking engagement is any advice specifically for myself I mean this is you know trying to get out into this world and make make sure people know about the accelerator and everything else um, but my program manager for the Accelerator, her name is Megan, and she is six months into the world of fintech and has been on one panel already about females in fintech. And yeah. so there is very much, you know, a, a conversation just around that side of things. So advice for folks younger that want to establish this brand, but especially advice for females that are trying to kind of get in that vein.
1: I love that. But well, the, th- the thing I have to go to next is a lunch on w- for women in fintech. Oh, so <laughs> it's good that they're doing that here at len- Yeah. <laughs> And um, I just did a podcast show dedicated to, it, yeah. to women in fintech.
0: And I've got my episode scheduled with Laura. So we, we, we have some overlap. Good, good, yeah. good.
1: Um, so the problem that I think we have to solve above all in, for fintech is that we need women founders. Mm-hmm. More women founders. And there are a lot of reasons that we don't have more. But I think everyone should have that in mind. Finance and government both are hierarchical systems where people work their way up from the bottom to the top over time. Tech uh, evolved as a as a bottom-up system where yeah. anybody could just say, I'm going to do this and do it. And yet, the tech world, too, they all ended up male-dominated. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think that we, that the tech world is dominated by founders, and we should be trying to figure out how to get more women founders. Um, my uh, other advice to women and girls is to learn to write code. I admit I don't myself, but um, I like to, with an audience, just ask how many people can write code. Yeah. And. Um, there's so much opportunity As I'll put in a plug for Hummingbird. We're recruiting engineers. We would love to have more women apply. Where can the people great find that info at hummingbird.co great. and one of our male co-founders wrote what we called a diversity manifesto. It's on our website and, um, it's about our commitment to having a diverse workforce because of all the reasons that that's so good for a company. Um, I also, I guess I just agree with the, the advice that's widely communicated that women should be uh, bold and not assume that they can't do something or that they wouldn't be accepted. I'm a great believer in, um, I, I was interviewed for Women in Housing and Finances magazine, our newsletter, um, and they asked me for the best advice that I'd ever gotten. And I found myself uh, answering, never fear. Hmm. That's the best advice. Don't be afraid. Be be brave. Be courageous. Do what, take risk. There's nothing worthwhile in life that you can do that doesn't require you to take some risk. If you fail, so what? You know, pick yourself back up.
0: I love it. All right. I think that is a great place to stop based on the goosebumps that you just gave me. So that's a wonderful, wonderful spot. Thank you so much for the time.
1: Thank you, Zach. It's just been a joy to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Joanne Barefoot. For more episodes, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Additionally, if you could hop on there and rate and review, that would be greatly appreciated. That helps other folks discover the podcast. One quick note before we depart. We are in full swing recruiting for Fountain City Fintech, uh, which is an accelerator inside of NBKC Bank. So for those that don't know, one of the hats that I wear in life is managing director of Fountain City Fintech. Uh, If you are an early stage fintech entrepreneur, we would love to have a conversation with you. Uh, You can find info on the accelerator specifically at fountaincityfintech.com. Uh, there's some contact information there that you can reach out to. Uh, additionally, on the contact side of things, if you want to get a hold of For Fintech's Sake, you can reach out on Twitter at For fintech Sake. You can get a hold of us on the website at forfintechsake.com. And if you wanted to get in touch with me personally, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Zach Pettit or my work email spelled the same way z-a-c-h dot p-e-t-t-e-t at n-b-k-c dot com keep an eye out for more episodes coming your way and stay aware of your unconscious bias y'all